can open in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Right as I open this up, my presentation app began updating, so we'll uh, let that finish. The first thing is one I wanted to have a slide for, but let's just review um, one more time as this paragraph finds its place really at the end of a dramatic flow of thought that the Apostle Paul has been building for us. That flow of thought is this that our life in the gospel is rooted in the historical redemptive acts of Christ. That He died and He rose. So in chapter 1, He described His death on the cross, His shedding of His blood, the breaking of His body, in order to accomplish redemption. And then He moved in the song, that actually comes immediately prior to reviewing his death. He moved in the song to uh, remind us of the resurrection of Christ, that he is the firstborn from the dead. So the historical death and resurrection of Christ is the foundation of the entire argument of Colossians. If we don't understand that, we don't understand the book. Well, we've reviewed it, remembered the gospel, and the Paul moved from that, from reminding us of the historical acts, to then tying us to them, that we are with Christ in His death, and we are with Christ in His resurrection, as dramatically demonstrated in the act of baptism, that we are buried in the water with Christ, and we rise from the water with Him. That reality has significant implications in the way that we think and the way that we act. And so, he began um, at the end of chapter 2, verse 20, says, Therefore, if you died, then do not think the old way. Then why would you follow these regulations? Don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. These are old ideas. These are Adamic ideas. They're from the world. That's their source. So it says, no longer following that because we're dead to it. Instead, chapter 3, verse 1, if you were raised with Christ... Then, seek the things which are above and set your mind on things above. So we no longer have Adam's mind, because that died. We have Christ's mind. We look there. Our thoughts flow from heavenly realities. It's the only way that we would live truly in this world, is if heaven informs our thoughts. But he doesn't end with our thoughts, does he? Last week and then this week, he moves from a consideration of our affections and desires, these, this internal recognition of Christ, to how he flows out of us and what we do with our hands and our feet, our members, how they take action in this world. So he said, cut off, put off, put to death all of these old Adamic members the things that were true in our old life, this sexual immorality, the anger and wrath, express, explosive expressions of selfishness and verbal cutting and wounding, blasphemy, filthy language out of our mouth. 
all of these things. He says, we've put that off. But that le- it left us wondering then, what, what shall we do? If this is a general view of what not to do, what is our view of what we ought to do? And that is chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, our text for this morning, where he says, put on. He gives us a list of virtues. And so here, where, where is it? If we looked in the old life, or if we looked to the old life, if we looked to Adam for all of the things that we ought not to think and ought not to do, then where should we look for our new life? Well, 3, 1 through 4 said, look above. Why? Because Christ is there. So we look to Christ to inform our thoughts. Where would we look to inform our actions? And here he gives a list of virtues that unsurprisingly is very Christological. It's a description of our Savior is really what this is. Because if we are alive with him, then our life looks like him. So here, as we see, is, is just think in the Gospels even. Have your Gospel mind on. Think through the person of Christ. If these virtues, are these not Christological? Tender, mercy, kind, humble, meek, long-suffering, and then forgiving, and above all in verse 14, loving. Wow, those, that describes our Savior, doesn't it? And if it describes Him, then it must describe us. I think that here in many regards is where the, where the rubber meets the road as far as the life of the Christian family. So this, once again, and, we'll, and he emphasizes this today, this is not, it's not an individual thing. It is individual, but it's, it's also largely corporate. That This is the, the new humanity, the new life of Christ together. Is it not true that as we look around us, perhaps even in your own experiences in church, and certainly some of those in the world who have been to and walked away from churches, large critiques could be leveled that maybe they said the right thing, but they didn't do the right thing. And it's not an unfair critique. We must do and live in a Christological way, individually and in relationship to each other. It is the natural outflow of the argument that he's making. If we are not to do this, then it does beg the question, are we with Christ? Because this is what the knowledge of him means. It's how it flows forth. So, you know, this is a non-negotiable for our family. And I hope that this will be true. Now, a family of faith that doesn't live these things out, does that, and this represents Jesus, of course, it does not give other people an excuse. Right? It, it never should be, the life of a Christian or a supposed Christian should never be the supreme evidence of whether Christ is true or he isn't. However, we have the opportunity, as we read last week in our call to worship, to be the ambassadors of Christ in this world, the visible representation, his body here on earth. And so we walk and move and have our being in him. Paul sums this up, this list of virtues in in Romans 13. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really the call this morning, is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, contextually, immediately flowing from the last, the last item of business from last week, which was, how we said, uh, the new man, don't lie to one another, since you put off the old man and have put on the new man. Who is, two things, renewed in knowledge, uh, in the knowledge according to the image of Christ who created us, and unified, 
There's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised. So this new body is continually renewed, and we actually get to in some way play a part in that in forgiving one another. We are continually renewed, and we are unified as the supreme re- truth about us. Our main reality is that we are His and in Him. And so we seek for grace to live out that reality. There's uh, two sections in the text this morning. Let's kind of talk through the structure. And, and I'll say at the onset, man, this is, a, this is a very packed text. It's very weaving. And I, I don't know if even in my heart and mind it's reduced enough to not weave. <laughs> so hang with me. Hang with Paul and, and, and engage in this text, even though it is, it is a bit, it feels a bit random. There, there are... Uh, two currents of thought flowing under a variety of, you could say, sermons. Like there's, there could be a good argument that this should be two. So we'll try to keep it within a normal range of time, but, but know that it is, um, there's a lot happening here. So 12 through 14 is our first section. And what we find here is particularly the list of virtues. Okay, so you remember last week, there were two different lists of five, vir- or five vices, So here is the equal opposite, not put off, but now put on. And he gives these five virtues with, at the very end of this section, a non-surprising sixth virtue. Okay, so the greatest of them all. So the, the the main idea here is put on Christ. And in the center of this section, verse 13, he goes toward a specific, a vital perhaps one of the greatest applications of what these virtues will look like as we interact with each other. Forgiveness. What does tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, and love look like? Well, one of the main things is that we forgive each other. And in this text, very crucially, he grounds the Christian ethic meaning why we do anything of what we do in our goodness and our morality. He grounds the Christian ethic into the life of Christ once again. So that's kind of the first section is the virtues um, with a specific application of bearing with and forgiving each other. The second section is split into three different pieces. I didn't even look, I didn't highlight the imperatives for you in the first one. But here, let the peace of God rule is the first imperative. Uh, be thankful is the second imperative, um, but it doesn't, and it carries imperatival force in the text. But he's really, I'll show you what he's doing with the, with the theme of thanksgiving. So, let the peace of God rule and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell Uh, with thanksgiving here. Gratitude. Thirdly, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. So you can see that structurally it's three imperatives followed by an undergirding this entire section is gratitude and thanksgiving, that that would be a primary way that we live with one another. Um. Didn't mention. So here's our here's our imperatives. The first one, the first one explicit. uh, The second one implied. Okay. So that's kind of our flow of thought. Five virtues 
applied with a final and brightest sixth virtue. Secondly, we have the, the, the gospel lived out, the gospel at home in our family. His peace is ruling, His word is dwelling, and everything we do is in His name. So it's, the, it's a, a picture painted of the, of the gospel at peace and flourishing in the family. Okay, let's seek God's help and then jump into the details of the text. Father, we know that this, these are your words. We have not made these up. We do not get to make up the interpretation or what they mean or how we feel about them. You have an intention this morning, and that is to point us to the resurrected Christ and the completion of our life as a local family representing your universal body. This is the life of a Christian. And as much as we battle and wrestle with these realities, I pray that in your kindness, this would be true of our local assembly. I ask that as we hear this word, we would not primarily look outward. We would not look, as we heard last week, with a critical eye at our neighbor or think of our brother or our sister and how they need this, but that we would look inside, that your Spirit would, as He promises, guide your people individually and corporately into truth. This is something you have promised to do, and so we trust your promise and rest in it this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen. It begins the text with, therefore, and this is what we've already discussed, that he's pointing back to our, the reality of our new life. If you were raised, therefore, because we have been raised, put on. But before he does that, before he, set, before he calls us to action, he puts the therefore another very explicit way. Not only because you've been raised with Christ, see these following two phrases, as the elect of God, as the holy and beloved ones. Now, in many ways, that's synonymous with saying you've been raised with Christ. We were chosen in Him. But election is the basis for all of the activity that is intended to flow in, uh, in our relationships to one another. The fact that God has chosen men and women toward His new creation. This goes back to the song in uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, that Christ is the originator, the, uh, the one that caused it to continue, and the end of the new humanity as well. Okay, so as men and women of the new creation, His choice souls, which is again, individual and corporate, that He has set apart for Himself, and into whose hearts He has poured His love, then it goes, it follows logically that our life together would exhibit something of His nature because we're His. He chose us. He called us. He's identified us as uh, these two things. These two things are holy and beloved. We have been first set apart as God's people for God's purpose. That's what holiness means. There are many times throughout Scripture that verses 
pair these two ideas together, election and holiness, God's choice of an individual towards something. Think even of the first peoples of God, Israel, Deuteronomy 7, 6, he says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Why? Because the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And the church. This reality is true of us as well. We saw this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He said, Coming to him as a living stones, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So our set-apartness is related very closely to his choice of us individually and corporately. Not only are we set apart for his service, but we are loved. And if I could commend uh, our midweek study to you this week, that's one of the very things we're going to be talking about, this marriage of God's choice and his love. That when he sets his affection on someone, That is his calling of them. It is his choice of them. As Malachi says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And God responds, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. He chose Jacob. He chose us. And in so doing, he has identified us as his beloved ones. Ironically, also, remember from chapter 1, who else is his beloved one? Jesus Christ. He's called us into the body of Christ. Romans 9 picks up this idea uh, that's found in Hosea as well. Romans 9.25 says, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, there's the choice, and her beloved who was not beloved. So God's choice is his affection being set on us. This is the ground of our life together. So God's love, not contingent, not dependent upon our response, upon what we do, but it's a prior act and it forms theologically the basis for a response like this. And I think that the use of this participle, loved, beloved, it paves the way for the list of virtues that ends with love. Because we've been loved, so we love. He'll demonstrate this again. Because we've been forgiven, we forgive. So our life is completely dependent upon who Christ is, what he does. So we put on this list of virtues. Put on, remember that this is like garment language, this is clothing language, and so we put on these moral garments of Christ. We look to his life, we see how he lived, and we pattern our lives after his own. We put on. These are concrete ways that we can respond to God's grace in choosing us, setting us apart for worship, and loving us. 
So let's just look briefly at this list. Once again, like last week, it's not the individual components that are uh, premier. It's, it's not that everyone has, stands on its own. They're sort of cast together to paint a picture in this, in this case of our Savior. So he begins with tender mercies, quite literally. This is a wonderful Greek word. Uh, this is the bowels of mercy or the intestines, the guts, the innards of mercy. It's kind of a weird idea to us. Uh, we don't speak that way. Um, but we do, as they did, uh, often associate kind of body parts with immaterial aspects of us. And so their uh, intestines, their bowels, were associated with this seat of emotion, this inner person who we are instinctually, and particularly what we love, what we're after, how we respond. That's the, the insides so we, as many languages and cultures do, we do this similarly, but our, our probably closest parallel would be like our heart. Now, another culture might be like, you mean the like weird organ, just like we kind of do with the innards. We're like, wait, you mean like the intestines? That's weird. But yet we just sort of, you know, make it cute and it makes sense to us and it's the heart. So it's kind of the seat uh, of emotions and responses. So we might say heartfelt mercy, genuine true compassion for each other. Well, that's everywhere in the Gospels. That's how Jesus saw people. He was moved with compassion. So it's the embodiment here of the Gospel. Tender mercies, tender-hearted mercy, heartfelt compassion. Then the second one, kindness. This is uh, benevolent acts. When we're looking at Christ, uh, this word is used of his acts of redemption. That was kind toward us. So a, sort of a generous disposition, a proper approach to people is kind. Uh, this is Ephesians language as well, that we are kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. So kindness is uh, a mirror of God's own activity toward us. Then humility, uh, this low posture. And we've mentioned a few points in time leading up to this, Philippians chapter 2 Remember when we looked at Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and said this is kind of representative of the mind of Christ. And here in Philippians 2, the mind of Christ related to humility is there's sort of a commentary on it. So it's a beautiful description. I'll just read a few verses from Philippians chapter 2. He says, let, the, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He described that previously as let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So an outward consideration. Not that we just consider ourselves last and think often of ourselves in this very lowly position, but that we are not really on our mind. We're not the first one on our mind. It is an others-centered disposition. That is Christ. He thought of us he considered us, not himself, first. So it's a low posture, not obsessive negatively or, pos or positively. And then meekness. Um, I've often, even I growing up, heard this short description of strength under control is meekness. It's, I think, a good description. You imagine a very strong individual uh, perhaps picking up a child very gently. Like it has great capability but it knows the proper way to respond and to interact and to approach, not just to come through like a bowl in a china shop, right, but to uh, be gentle. 
And that idea, once again, is very true of Christ. I think often he's misrepresented um, today. He's, he, people look at his meekness and they see weakness. And that's not true. That's not what it is. Very strong, very composed, very under control. You might think of last week, right? He said, not angry and wrathful. No explosions of anger, a lack of control. No, he says controlled. Strength under control. So the opposite of acting with wrath. Faced with uh, undeserved criticism, you know, we see Jesus is very calm, even if it is a strong response. He never gave way to rage. Um, Even on the cross, he didn't give way to rage despite the injustice. He, in fact, interceded with God for the offenders. He remained composed. Uh, These last two, humility and meekness, are the two very words of Christ concerning himself in the beautiful text in Matthew where he says, I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. That is humility and meekness. Final one, long-suffering. According to God and Christ, this is often described as a delay of judgment. He suffers long. We saw that in Peter as well, that he waits to bring judgment in order to bring salvation today. And so for us, if, you know, if kindness above is our basic approach, then long-suffering or patience, enduring with each other, is our basic response, that we're willing to endure one another. And he's going to go into description of that in the next part, bearing with and forgiving one another. He sort of applies it for us. But that we're not immediately, again, critical, immediately condemning. No, we have long-suffering. There's a long wick. There's a long endurance that we have for each other's faults, failures, foibles, all these things. We'll move to the final virtue. Skip 13. Look at the final one and then see the application. So above all of these, uh, the premier one, the most significant one, in the clothing imagery, Paul may even be implying like an outer coat, that which goes on top. You put on all these clothes, all these virtues, and now the outer garment, greatest of them all, put on Don love. Put on love. Why? This is the bond of perfection. And here in this phrase, bond of perfection, he draws back to two ideas that he has already pulled together in the book of Colossians. The bond is used in chapter 2, verse 19, to describe the ligaments of the body that holds things together. Love holds us together. Toward what end? Well, toward perfection. And in chapter 1, verse 28, Paul described his heart for the Colossian family and for, I I think, the world, (laughs) that he desired, after preaching the gospel, to then present every man complete. So this idea of maturity... That love draws us together, holds us together toward the intended maturity of Christ in us. Think in 1 Corinthians 13, right? The, one of the greatest, if not the greatest passage on description of love. Paul would draw out some of these ideas as well, develop them even. But foundationally in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if we don't have love, we don't have anything. Love for each other is a necessary demonstration of Christ's own love for us. 
So all of these virtues, five and a sixth, that represent our Savior Jesus and how we should treat one another as He treated us, okay? Let's apply that in verse 13. Two phrases, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Note, first of all, the relationship that he's discussing, one another, three different times he describes, and that is in the New Testament almost exclusively a description of how the local church that to which Paul writes is intended to respond to this reality. So we now, 2,000 years later, are going to respond in like kind that toward each other, toward the members, the family of grace, we will bear with one another and forgive one another. Bearing with is, is the, uh, the more begrudging of the two. Most often that's described kind of with a little bit of a negative uh, connotation in the New Testament. Here it's positive for sure, but normally it's kind of begrudging, like uh, putting up with okay, I'll put up with you, that kind of an idea. Enduring, yeah, and it's an endurance because it's not easy. We're difficult people, that kind of an idea. So maybe there's the a bit shaded view of this application, and then the brighter and more brilliant application is forgiving. Here, forgiving one another. This is the embodiment of the gospel, forgiveness, and the word that he uses is a, is a little bit unique. He's discussing the erasure of debts that we owe each other. Remember chapter 2, that this is exactly what Christ has done for us. He has erased our debts. So now we erase one another's. And the reality in that if statement, if anyone has a complaint against another it demonstrates something very important. Conflicts will arise. The, I mean, the very fact that he has to call us to put off sexual morality, put off anger, put off bitterness, all these things, doesn't that reason that there are some of these things that linger? We do wrestle with these realities. They will come out. We will follow Adam here and there, hopefully not always. And the fact that he has to call us toward putting on the virtues <laughs> means that might not be so natural either. So the offense may be common and the poor response may be common. But not in the new humanity. That's not the intended outcome. So this will arise, right? We will, we will frustrate each other. Families do that. <laughs> Biological families do that. The body of Christ will do that. We'll frustrate each other. We will lash out at one another. We will speak words that cut and wound. We will gossip. We will lie. Or we will not um, be kind. We'll be unkind. We'll be arrogant and proud. We'll be overbearing will be impatient and unloving. Now, that is not intended to be the character, but it will be the occurrence in our church family. And the guy in verse 13, the, Christ, the Colossian Christian, he has a valid complaint. He was offended, not because he's being petty, but because he was sinned against. Christians 
sin against each other. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to handle that? You have a case. There is some injustice. There needs to be justice. (laughs) And there is an accurate, you could say, handwriting of requirements against your brother. Even perhaps against me or against Pastor Matt, there probably will be occasion that there is a valid handwriting of requirements against your shepherds. What do we do when, you know, I I say the wrong thing, forget important parts of your story, don't act in the way that you anticipated or should have been expected, mishandling a situation, what then? Is it over? Are we done? Mm, Not the Christian way, not according to Christ. Running from conflict is not generally speaking, the right answer. You see, anger, wrath, and bitterness is not the right answer. That's the answer of the world. And so, this forgiveness, willingness to overwrite wrongs, to drop appropriately assessed debts towards each other, that is intended to be this premier feature of the Christian body. That we imitate the Lord in forgiveness. So, when you don't get along, when we hurt each other, be willing to erase debts. Now, I think that this concept is so important that for the only time in the book of Colossians, we're going to next week take verse 13 and expand upon it thematically. We're going to look at forgiveness because I would anticipate that there are even things in your own minds right now like, well, forgiveness to everybody, forgiveness for what? What does forgiveness exactly mean? Just erase debts? You know, if we just constantly did that, if the legal system did that, where would we be? Like what? There's, it's a complex issue. And so we're going to spend next week expanding upon forgiveness and sort of talk about how we're intended with each other and with the world Uh, and how God thinks about forgiveness. But it is here a very strong statement, and grounded at the end of the verse is the Christian ethic. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So all of this, the virtues and the love and, and ultimately expressed in forgiveness, these are not simply benevolent acts of morality. They're not simply nice things we do for each other. Other people in the world do some of those things for each other. That's not necessarily or inherently Christian. We're not driven by a neutral ethical subject. But these acts, these virtues, are made possible by God's acts through Christ. So it is a critical, Christological lens through which we have to view the outflow of our acts toward each other. Christ isn't calling us to anything that He is not in person or anything that He has not done in practice. He is our example. So, He is us now. We are the body of Christ. And if God has made peace with us, surely we can make peace with each other. This second section, these three individual components, 
um, the first of them in verse 13 or 15, you can see how it would pick up the same idea of forgiveness because he begins with, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now, this whole section is, remember, this grateful gospel abundance. So, the peace of God ruling in our hearts, that should take us right back to chapter 1, verse 20, reconciliation. He made peace with his body, with his blood. He made peace. So, forgiveness, which is the erasure of debts, that produces peace. This is the fruit of reconciliation, the fruit of the absence of enmity. There's peace, there's rest. So to incorporate this idea, the peace of God ruling in our hearts, is to behave with the realization of the reality of what God did in reconciliation, that Jesus accomplished peace, and so we live in peace with Jesus' family. Now, it's a really cool idea where he he says that the peace of God would rule in your hearts. This is the only time this word is used, but there's another related word in Colossians, if you remember back to uh, chapter 2, verse 18, where the false teachers are being critical. They're judging and making judgments and rulings about the Christian family. And that idea is underneath this word, this rule, the judgments. Uh, Maybe a modern example would be like an umpire or a referee, someone who's making the calls, uh, an arbiter, the last voice. And so he says that we should have the fruit of reconciliation, peace, be the final decisive factor, the deciding vote in our interactions with one another, that in a healthy body, harmony is going to prevail. Strife inevitably results when men and women who are, quote unquote, out of touch with the one who brings peace, in making our decisions and deciding how to respond and choosing between perhaps two alternatives and how we might settle a conflict that has arisen, a concern to preserve the peace of God in our community should be the controlling, ruling principle. And that's intentionally not fair. It's intentionally generous. Just like what we've received from Christ is not fair. It's intentionally generous. So it's just the rule where in our hearts, not necessarily this like internalized peace, like I'm just, you know, humming to myself or happy and harmonious, not, you know, not depressed or not anxious. No, I'm just, things are going well. Not exactly like that, but the in our hearts is, it's the same phrase that he uses later when he says, singing in your hearts to the Lord at the end of verse 16. So singing in your hearts is not supposed to be, you know, like we're not actually singing. It's just happening in our hearts. No, he's saying that it is sincere. You might say sing with gusto. Sing truly. Sing from your heart, heartfelt, genuine, proceeding from the inner being, proceeding from your innards. (laughs) So there's a genuine peace that exists in us because we have been reconciled to God. 
It's characteristic of me individually as a new human, and it's characteristic of us as the new humanity, and it is our ruling principle. It's the deepest and truest part of us. We've experienced peace, and so we extend peace. We've been called to this, (laughs) to which, which is peace, to peace, we have been called in one body. And so he reiterates two, for the sake of time, we actually won't go into this, but the two common principles uh, which is election in the, prior, uh, in the verses prior, and then the unity, the, the oneness of the body. We were called to peace. God chose us for it. Um, then he concludes, and be thankful. Another command, um, but an imperative that we'll develop as we go through these next two verses as a theme. Okay? Certainly, gratitude is the natural response to generosity and peacemaking in an unfair sort of gracious way. <laughs> we say, well, thank you. <laughs> I will live my life in, in gratitude for what you've done, okay? Um, then the second one, and, and we'll kind of let this one bloom a little bit. Verse 6, this is the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. So a second imperative in the second section. What is it that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. What is that? Well, I, th- I refer to back to chapter 1, verse 5, in the very beginning, when he said um, he's rejoicing and giving thanks. Oh, okay, he's giving thanks. Why? Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And so this word of Christ is, in short form, the gospel. It is that which is spiritually real, this story of redemption. Let redemption and reconciliation and Christ's acts of uh, His death and resurrection and ascension and return, let those uh, make their home with us. May they be in joyfully uh, at rest in our house. May, may um, it walk freely in this hall. You know, may the gospel walk freely among us. That sort of an idea. Now, how would the gospel message dwell in us richly? How would it have free course in our lives? Well, here are several modes. This teaching and the admonishing, which is a pair, and then singing. That's a premier way, perhaps not the exclusive ways, but these are premier ways for the Word of Christ to have its abundant life in our family. So, the first one, and here's a I'll just go ahead and introduce a textual issue. Um, Where does psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs go in the text? It either goes up that we teach and admonish in these ways, or it goes down, say we sing in these ways in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Let's make uh, the two arguments. So, in favor of it going up with, or I'll go the other way first. In favor of going down with singing in your hearts to the Lord. Um, primarily, it's a thematic argument, right? Singing is psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That makes a lot of sense thematically uh, that, that he would be referring to singing those sorts of things. Um, however, what that does is it causes teaching and admonishing one another to stand all on its own, right up there by itself. So everybody, teach and admonish each other. Okay? That's a principle that's found occasionally in Scripture. 
once in Romans, once in Hebrews. Um, but it's not a very common idea that everyone is the instructor of everyone else. Everyone is the teacher of everyone else. I think it's probably more harmonious to consider this in a general sense of instruction. After all, in, a more common theme in Scripture is that not many are to be teachers. Um, that the role of a teacher is a dangerous role. The role of a teacher is um, a unique one that is called by God and by his people. So I, it's, I don't think it's saying, okay, everybody, here we go. Everyone start teaching each other. Um, instead, I think he's probably saying in this way, everyone is a teacher. And the best premier way to do that uh, in wisdom while we walk together as a Christian family is that everyone teaches, not exclusively, but primarily in song. In how we, in what we just did, that every voice is raised uh, as we instruct one another. So in favor, I, I want to show you this, in favor of these things going, um, in favor of, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs going with teaching and admonishing. Look at the, look at the parallelism here. So he begins with a prepositional phrase, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. And then with, in the Greek, he does the same thing. In grace or with grace, sing. Then he gives the uh, admonition, so teaching and admonishing, and then here, singing. Then he follows it up with a descriptive prepositional phrase, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and then at the end, in your hearts to the Lord. So the first one uh, is kind of others-centered, that we teach and admonish one another. And the final one is God-centered. So one kind of horizontal and one vertical. And the unique thing is singing does both. So singing is toward each other and singing is toward the Lord. So I think it's a very strong structural argument in favor of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs being the primary teaching and admonishing that we do toward each other. Uh, additionally, I'll make one other comment to Ephesians 5.19, which is the kind of cross-reference with this verse, states it explicitly in this way. He says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So the, the, the pair, the pair epistle, would favor this argument as well, okay? Um, so what are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Certainly, um, songs. <laughs> it is music. Um, are there intentional distinctions between these three words? Actually, I'm not going to go into that for the sake of time today because I don't know that it's a strong, uh, strong argument, but certainly everything that we do in our voices together, when we raise our voices melodically to God, is that is, it is intended to be uh, diverse. It's intended to be theological. It's intended to be rich it's intended to be Christological. Uh, it's intended to be singable because everybody is doing it together. A lot of those sorts of things. So I think there's a lot to be said in the application, uh, if not in the individual distinction of, of those three. So a few points of application in singing from your heart or, or in this idea of application of singing. One, that as we sing to each other, how should we think of this? First, think of uh, something that's genuine where he says here, here's the repetition of the, the idea of from your guts, right? From that which is truly inside of you, that 
our hearts are toward each other when we sing. Secondly, not one voice is the teacher. This is our time to instruct everyone all together. So every voice is a teacher, from the young to the old, from the highly intellectual to the very simple. This is one lesson that we have to learn all together. So the choir is the teacher. Singular voices are not intended to spike and to rise above the rest, to dominate. No, because we're not only teaching, are we? We're also hearing. We're being instructed. And so to hear the voices of brothers and sisters is, is an essential aspect of our song. It's one of the reasons that the volume from the front outward is not cranked up. Because even though we could, it's not the point. The point is that we hear the choir of God in one voice singing to each other. So it's got to be up enough for it to be heard and led. So there's unison and one lesson, not a thousand lessons or 150 or so lessons, but that we have one thing to instruct one another with. And I, I want, this is a wise way. This is a wise way for us to approach instruction of each other. While teaching and admonishing, it's, it's undoubtedly, as we think about generally, the, the responsibility of the elders. This is encouraged and engaged by every member of the congregation. So it's a wise way to approach that. Be instructed, listen to the voices around you, think of your family. Wise teachers would often consider their curriculum, wouldn't they? They would consider the lesson. So our music will be true, doctrinally sound, gospel-centered, Christologically rich, thematically relevant music. It will be those things. It's our commitment to you. But it would also be good, if not to prepare beforehand, perhaps with like the playlist or with the email of what we're going to be doing this Sunday, but that during we're also very intellectually engaged with the lesson that we're instructing each other in. So engage your mind during. Okay, so there's some, some helpful applications, some thoughts about our song. And uh, we're going to conclude with verse 17. It's a summary, and it's, it's a big one. It's kind of a doozy, where he, nothing gets to escape, verse 17. He just casts cast this really, really wide, comprehensive, all-inclusive net. And he says, and whatever you do, all of the things you could ever do, in word or in deed, so the totality of you, every thought, every moment, every dollar, every, everything, every ounce of strength, all of it is intended completely. Remember, fullness is one of his themes. He's arguing against uh, supplementing the fullness of Christ. So he says, the fullness of you, because you're with Christ, so your Christ is all to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And be grateful about it. <laughs> be, give thanks as you do it. So he's moved beyond begrudging and he, he brings this threefold call for thanksgiving to accumulation. He's like, not just in this thing or in that thing or in your favorites or in your acts of service or when the circumstances are right. In all things, it's the equal opposite of First Thessalonians 5. I won't turn there because it'll take me too long. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, when he says, don't be uh, grudging in, in anything, but in everything, express gratitude. And so that's the call here, is that our life is one of thanksgiving. 
So a helpful thought through this process, whatever we do in word or deed, all the moments, all the media, all the things we consume, all the things we say, all the things that are going on, all our musings, all of it, it's very interesting, isn't it, that he's not, he doesn't go through and give an encyclopedic list, much like the law, much like the Old Testament gives, not everything, but high, highly more encyclopedic than the New Testament, isn't it? But now he says in Christ, we're not going to be the people who say, do, don't, touch, don't touch. Here's this, here's that, here's this, here's that. Watch out for this, watch out. It's not, it's not comprehensive lists that the New Testament Christian is given. It is far bigger principles that we have freedom in Christ to live out. Very big principle, isn't it? So I'd encourage you in all matters, but certainly in matters of the conscience, what should I do? What should I say? Is this permissible? How should I respond? How should I act? When Scripture is not explicit, when it doesn't give me the ABCs, then this principle is a very helpful principle that you might restate it as a question and say, can I do X, Y, and Z in the name of the Lord Jesus? Is this thought and act, word or deed, is this Christological? Is this glorifying to the one whose life, my life, is intended to pattern? And while that may not give you the clearest answer to some ambiguous questions, it certainly puts you on the right path. If you honestly face verse 17... Hmm, there's dismissal of a lot of things probably in our lives and the embracing of many others and certainly in how we treat one another. So, I know I'm kind of over, over time here and there's, a, there's much more that could be said. Two sermons, like we said. So let's review a few principles. Where do we look when we want to know how to live the Christian life? Christ himself. So open the Gospels again. It's a good place to look as he extends compassion, humility, kindness, meekness, love to people who don't deserve it. What is one of the primary expressions of Christ? Well, his forgiveness. That's why we're here. And it's something that we will, in Christ, continue to offer each other. More on that next week. This gospel should have free reign in our family. It should be able to walk where it pleases. And that has implications where peace is going to be one of the primary deciding factors in how we treat each other. That one way for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly is to sing. And we sing to each other to instruct. And we sing to God with gratitude for what he has done. And everything, whatever we do, in word or in deed, let's do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Would you stand with me and let's, let's close in prayer. Pray for you.